As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I literally shoveled shit, like horse shit out of stables and what have you, threw it into bags and, you know, sold those bags for a dollar a bag as like one of my first jobs. So oh, that's uh, fertilizer. Yeah. Just throw it on the so garden. So you, your first job was selling shit. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. That might be the best first job we've ever had. In the five years of this podcast, that might be the best first job I've heard. So congrats. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we are talking credit, specifically the credit score, that one number that is so utterly central to modern life. It's what allows you to afford a car or not, to purchase a house or not. And I don't know about you, but I've had moments when my score has dipped for whatever reason. Sometimes I know why, a lot of times I don't. And all of a sudden life gets much more expensive or I suddenly am unable to afford something or get just outright denied a good or a service. And what is weird is just how primitive the credit score is still in 2022, especially for people on the edges of the system. So here's an amazing fact for you. The 250 eligible people, really adults in America, 100 million do not have access to fair credit or in the industry parlance are credit invisible. So when you think about just the economic knock-on effects of nearly half the adult population being shut out of a whole swathe of financial services, it's a very big deal. And that's what this week's guest has come up with a way to address. Warren Hogarth is the founder of a company called Empower. And what they do is they offer credit services to those 100 million people by using some very clever machine learning algorithms to assess risk and also critically by accessing their kind of real-time bank data, which amazingly, traditional credit scores don't do. And so they can better understand a person's finances and then make decisions accordingly. So Warren has just a really interesting, twisting journey to get to this place as well. He starts out in Australia where he literally sold poop we'll get into that moves to america gets a job at sequoia the big blue chip venture capital firm and now ending up where he is currently in london running in power and it should be noted as a fully remote operation which we also talk about so we cover a lot of ground my hope is you'll come away from the conversation i think with a much deeper understanding of credit scores what's wrong with them and just the huge opportunity that lies in really coming up with a better way to assess people and bringing in tens of millions, literally hundreds of millions of people that today are kind of on the outside looking in of the kind of traditional world of finance and credit. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Warren Hogarth, founder and CEO of Empower. Enjoy. We were talking before we started recording. I think 
it feels like one of the things that you guys, uh, one of the holes in the market, if you will, is the whole idea around just the credit score and the the kind of the role that that plays today. And it's something that everybody interacts with sooner or later, especially once you start adulting, as it were, and have to like buy anything or do anything. And, you know, some people's experience of it is really not good. It's very negative. It's like, you know, it's kind of like you're jousting with this random number. And and if it goes up, it's great for your life. And if it goes down, it's really terrible for your life. <laughs> so I was just wondering if you could just if we could start there. Uh, from where you sit, what is the problem with credit scores and how, how they're calculated, the role they play? And what is it that you guys are doing that kind of addresses at least part of that? Empower's mission is to solve access to credit. And in the US, what does that mean? There's 250 million people that are adult consumers. 150 million of those have access to fair credit, about 100 million don't. Um, and that's the sort of score, you know, that you're talking about the credit score. So when you say 100 million are kind of outside those bounds, is that just like they have quote unquote bad credit? It's a mix. So about 60 million of those are what are either called credit invisible. So they don't really have a credit score. They're immigrants or, you know, new adults that haven't had a chance to build credit. A thin file, which in technical parlance mean typically means you've got less than three trade lines with at least three years of history. And then there are folks that have had an incident with credit in the past that has is sort of holding them back and means that it's very expensive, almost limited or almost no access to credit. That could be medical debt. It could be when you're in college and you didn't just understand what you were doing uh, and you know you were reckless or something happened or there a medical emergency, all hosts of things. And once you're sort of, you're marked, it's very hard to get back up that ladder effectively. Right, right. I mean, because you guys are, obviously have intimate knowledge of all of this. What does that mean, you know, for those 100 million? Because I know that, like, my credit's fine, you know, so I can kind of get things more or less. We recently bought a car last year. It was like it was fairly straightforward. But if you get down to below a certain level, is it just mean you're just getting denied things? Like you can't access swathes of the modern economy effectively? And it's more than just dollars. So my own personal experience, uh, you know, and I'm why well, I would consider myself fortunate and lucky. You mm. know, I was an immigrant. I'd been taught sort of the basics of finance and I'd been fortunate to work my way through college, have some savings. I did, uh, you know, the sort of the heinous crime when I came to the US of paying all my debts out of my savings and my cash flow. And then when I went to get a car, I didn't have a credit report and therefore I couldn't get a car to drive to work. And so I basically would have had to really dip into my savings to be able to afford the car to get to work. And so for a lot of people, it's it's something that is a, you know, important to their daily life. Mm. Uh, for others, it's things like your ability to rent. You know, many of us have had the experience of applying for rent and having to put down a massive deposit if you don't have a credit score or you don't have good credit, which most people don't have. Um, in many states, it's still your job application and your car insurance, it even impacts. So this score, you know, has a huge impact on many aspects of day-to-day -day life. Right. So what are you guys doing? How do you solve that problem? So there's a couple of ways we, we look at it. The first thing is we try to turn the paradigm of how credit is on its head. The way, if you're fortunate, that credit typically works is you're able to get attached when you're young to your parents or somebody who yeah. has good credit and kind of like 
sort of jump the queue in many ways and 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 get somebody else's credit attached to yours and then you're off to the races. If you're not in that position, it's very hard to get started. And so, or if you've had one of those mistakes in the past, it's hard to get back on the right track. And so what we do is we underwrite people um, based on their bank account data first, rather than their credit score. And so that shows us things like, do you have stable income or do you have a side hustle? How long have you had income for? Are you generally able to make your payments uh, that you need on a regular basis. Right. And it, this is all done instantly and via an algorithm. And if we're able to see that more or less you're doing the right thing, then we extend you a small amount of credit. Well, up to sometimes it instantly it's as much as uh, $250 on the in the first few minutes. Uh, but it's, you know, it's up to that. And then every time you make ongoing repayments on that, where reassess and you get the benefit of each one of those payments. So we also give you some money as a chance to get started. And it could be as little as a few hundred dollars of income in the last, each of the last three months is enough to get started. Got you. If you're targeting this kind of section of the population that has already has, has terrible credit or has no credit, does that mean you're charging um, like nosebleed rates at, to these people, uh, at least in the first instance? That's a great question. So the short answer is no. And the reason for that is twofold. Firstly, because we're able to look at your bank account data and your real-time information, we're able to, again, sort of pick who is in a position to make repayments. And so our loss rates are very, very low. They look more like what we call prime users in the industry. And then the second thing is another important innovation, which is we've basically built in an automated savings mechanism into the products that we offer. And that means it makes it extremely simple to repay and repay on time. So you basically don't have to think about it. What do you mean? Well, the way credit is done today, if you're sitting in the 100 million people that don't have access, you typically don't have a lot of extra savings. And what happens is when you sign up for credit, the way the existing credit like a bank will do it is they'll pick a random date as your repayment date. But that's often not the best day for you to repay. It could be like say three days before your payday when often you have very little money left in the account and you still need to put food on the table or gas in the car. Totally. So what we do is we look at your cash flow and we look at what are the best times for you to save and repay. And we give the user the option to set that as their sort of their default repayment plan. So your default it could be payday, basically. Basically, yeah, we give people the option to split their repayments, say, over the next few paydates or close to the next few paydates. And then if they come to that and it's not, you know, they might not be able to do that, they can shift it to another one or something like that. So there's some flexibility also built in there as well. Got you. This all seems like quite simple and quite, like fairly straightforward because <laughs> the one thing that's always struck me about credit, it's a little bit like when you're looking for your first job and every job says they want somebody with five years experience but there it's an entry level job and you're like well how am i going to get experience if no one will hire me it's this kind of circular thing and so doing things like not even for people who don't have credit but people who do like getting access to real time banking data that feels like that should be just part of the process is there any reason why it is not that you know of yeah there's a couple of reasons. So firstly, historically, it was very difficult to get access to that information. Mm. Recently, there are companies like Plaid, for example, who have 
and this was actually something that came out of, I think it was the Frank Dodd Act and some of that legislation that mandated access. Banks give access to that rather than block it. I see. So that's relatively new. Because it used to be blocked. Yes. I see. I see. So unless you had your credit from the institution you banked at, and they weren't very incented to make that work, it didn't happen. The second thing is the data isn't structured very well. Mm. So you'd think it would be really easy for the bank to know this transaction came from this merchant, this was a paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, it's kind of like, it's almost like you're scanning in a PDF and it's random information. You've actually got to basically fully restructure all of that information. There's a lot of machine learning that goes into doing that and doing it very, very well. Mm. And so there's a lot of technology that has to get applied to doing it. The other thing is that traditional banks have a very high cost structure. You know, it costs them on the order of say $200 a year to serve a customer. It's very hard to make mm. money if those are your costs and you want to make smaller dollar loans. Whereas our costs are sub $20 a year to serve a customer. Right. And so that also allows us to sort of reach a different population and provide more of an on-ramp. Got you. Can we go back to the beginning when you were in short pants? Yeah. Um, you said you're uh, an immigrant. Where are you from? Because obviously you're not from these shores. And I think you're calling from London right now. Is that right? I'm calling from London at the moment. So, right. But originally I'm from Australia. So grew up in Brisbane. And then my, my grandparents have a cattle property, a cattle ranch in American parlance in central Queensland. And so spent a lot of time growing up there. That feels middle of nowhere-ish. Is that fair? Yeah, they have 35,000 acres. Wow. You know, the nearest town's a 35-mile drive, and it's got about 100 people in it. So, yeah, that, that sounds a bit... <laughs> yeah, that's good. But but you learn a lot. And, like, you yeah. know, I, I literally shoveled shit, like horse shit out of stables and what have you, threw it into bags, and, you know, sold those bags for a dollar a bag as, like, one of my first jobs. So... Oh, that's uh, fertilizer. Yeah, just throw it on the so garden. So, your first job was selling shit. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. That might be the best first job we've ever had. In the five years of this podcast, that might be the best first job I've heard. So congrats Thank you. to these like random awards I've just created. <laughs> so how long were you there? Like when did you leave? Yeah, I left when I was in graduate school. I was lucky enough to, to get a scholarship to come to the US. And so I spent a year at Princeton on exchange. I was doing a PhD at the time. PhD in what? Chemical engineering. Mm. My... Hope had always been an entrepreneur. At the time, the, the startup ecosystem in Australia was nowhere near as developed as it is now. And the best way to become a founder was to go and do a PhD in something technical, try and invent some technology and start a company out of it. And where had you gone to uni? The University of Queensland in Brisbane. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. And then you got so, over to Princeton. Yeah. So, right. right, right. So that was good fun. And what I realized was we had some provisional patents on some cool technology but when I started the market, I was doing fuel cell research. The market was... Yeah, so wait, hold on. You said you <laughs> like casually just got started picking up patents. So what was your idea? What were you going to do? We were going to create a new kind of fuel cell that would solve the range anxiety problem in vehicles so that okay. we could move to electric vehicles sooner. And this was uh, what year-ish? 2004, Oh, so that was like, I think that might have been the year Tesla was founded-ish. Similar time frame, yeah. yeah. At the time, batteries had supposedly reached their limits and yeah. fuel cells were going to be the answer. That's interesting that you were going to go for that, though, because at the time, electric cars weren't really a thing. Like People were like, yeah, that's not, this, as you say, it's, this isn't going to work. There was still this recognition that I think there were going to be challenges around 
pollution and climate change and what have you. And we needed to be starting to work on solutions. Right. So you came up with a fuel cell technology or started working on one and then what? Uh, I realized that uh, it was still going to be at least five years away from market mm. when I finished my PhD. But I'd fallen in love with being an entrepreneur that I was very lucky. I With some mates, we won the business plan competition at Princeton, met a lot of VCs and startup founders. Mm. And I knew I wanted to be a builder and I didn't want to wait and do yeah. the technology side. And so long story short, I decided to go to business school as a way to sort of I had to go back to Australia to finish my, write up my thesis, but I, as a way to come back to the US and work on ideas. Actually in business school, I helped found my first FinTech company, which with a few friends, where we were trying to make financial advice more accessible. And this was 2007 now, and we, we raised seed capital. In 2007. Yeah. Right. So this is around the time Airbnb is founded. This is where 250K got you, you know, the, the entrepreneur, the investor bought 20% of the company for 250K kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. So you're starting a fintech company around financial advice right before the Great Recession. Yeah. Phenomenal learning experience. The company did not work out. Learned a lot about regulation, which was actually one of the main barriers at the time. The challenges of financial services of state versus federal regulation. Oh, yeah. What were you trying to do when you say you're trying to make it more accessible? Like how? Yeah. So this was more for an investor. So at that time, most like investment research and what have you, you had to pay an absorbent amount of money to an investment bank to get mm. any kind of data. And we were trying to work out how anyone who had some good advice could basically publish it. People could either invest behind that thesis or even potentially invest in somebody else's like portfolio on a synthetic basis. And if you know Wealthfront today, yep. way back then, it was actually called Kaching. And actually, we, so that was, <laughs> it was, we were competed with them at the time in a prior incarnation, which eventually evolved and piv two pivots later became Wealthfront. Wow. They were called Kaching. Yeah. I think the, the rebranding was a good idea. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, that, so how long did you try that before you did, threw in the towel? I did it for about nine months. And then for visa reasons, actually, I wasn't able to, mm. my mates left and went full time, but I w wouldn't have been allowed to work. I'd have to leave the country. And back then remote work wasn't an option. So, uh, so they went off and, and spent more time on it. And then I, through separate process, met some of the team at Sequoia Capital. And when I graduated business school, went and joined Sequoia to become an investor and help build from that side. Right. And how long did you do that? Almost eight years. Wow. Phenomenal experience. And I was very, very lucky. So one of the first meetings I was in was when Brian and Nate and Joe from Airbnb came in to pitch this their famous seed round where mm. uh, Sequoia invested 600K for 20%. For and uh, 600K for 20% of Airbnb. Yeah. And when you were there, did you, did you, were you like immediately like, yeah, this is a good idea? Uh, I'm not, I won't claim to be that <laughs> clever. I was observing and learning and yeah. uh i certainly did not have the foresight on that one at the time it was, it was very new yeah where i was lucky was i got to see some of the most iconic companies that decade built i was there when patrick from stripe came in mm -hmm. for seed in series a good friend of mine david Velez, went and founded new bank we did the seed in series a and so i had invested in a company called sunrun which was a oh yeah which is now a public company and well, the largest solar finance company in the US. So got to see that company get built and go public. And that was an amazing experience, the highs and lows. I invested in a company, another company in the fintech space called Future Advisor, mm. which uh, was in the sort of automated 
portfolio management side of things and sold to BlackRock. So just an incredible experience seeing and helping build iconic companies. What are the one or two that you're like, I can't believe I missed that? <laughs> or, I, or I said no to? I brought the, the Lyft founders in on a Friday afternoon and we decided not to invest. I think it was the Series B. At that point, it wasn't called Lyft. It was called... That was when they had like mustaches on the cars, right? This is before they had even had mustaches on the car. They're actually doing like a carpooling company. Zimride. 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 Yes, that's what it was called. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, I think it was six weeks into Lyft at the time. Wow. And my a funny story, because I was, as part of due diligence, had my wife signed up to be a driver. Uh, because <laughs> I couldn't be a driver because they know it was me. But I had my wife sign up to be a driver for Lyft, Uber, and I think there's another one called Sidecar at the time. Yeah, I think Sidecar was Sunil Paul, yeah. who we've also had on this podcast. So what was your wife's experience? Was she like, oh, definitely Uber is going to win? <laughs> no, I think it was more the, it was eight weeks in. And to me, that was one of those ones where I don't think anyone imagined the market would be yeah. as big as it was. Even if you go look, I think it's public now, the Series A deck of Uber, which we also looked at. I think they said the total black car market globally was like 5 billion. And, you know, if they took a 20% slice and of it, it took the whole market, it was, you know, one tenth or one fiftieth the size of what it's become today. Right. And I did, that's one of those ones where we just, I think, didn't quite dream big enough. Right. With eight weeks of data. And the other thing, <laughs> we're just scared of the taxi lobbies at the time. Like mm. they were so powerful and what it would take to overcome these characters. Totally. Obviously there's been well, HBO series made about Uber, but I think it, d it did feel like you needed somebody like Travis to just basically bash through the walls, kind of. You needed somebody a little bit crazy to kind of make that a market. Extremely, like, tenacious, tough. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would have been fun for most people, that ride, because you would have gotten yelled at and bullied mm -hmm. by a lot of other people. You had to have a lot of uh, conviction to go yeah. through that. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when did you leave Sequoia and was it to do this? Yes. Uh, I left in the end of 2015 and founded Empower in 2016. So did you leave to do this? In other words, be like, all right, I'm done kind of, you know, on the sidelines, so to speak. I want to do my own thing. I left to found something mm. and I loved investing. What I tell people though is it's kind of a little bit like being on a swim team. 
versus being on a rugby team. I'm so interested to see where this goes. <laughs> so <laughs> investing, you spend a lot of time with your portfolio company. So mm -hmm. like four out of five days, you're either meeting potential companies, often individually, or with maybe one other person, and then a lot of time with your portfolio company. And then you come together once a week for partner meetings and invest like the core pitches and stuff like that. So you're you're on a team, but it's you know, you're spending a lot of time without your your teammates and what have you, and yeah. a little bit swimming your own race. Whereas being a, a founder and building from scratch and the team, like the rugby team analogy is if anyone drops the ball, the whole team feels it. everyone owns the outcome and you're all going in exactly the same direction. And um, the camaraderie that comes from that and the, like the shared experience that comes from that, I just find very enjoyable, very powerful. Mm. And that's sort of something that I've learned that fills my cup. Right. I was just saying about what you're saying about your portfolio companies. Imagine I hadn't really even thought of that aspect of it, which seems quite obvious once you say it, is just this idea that as an investor, if you're backing a company, you're kind of getting into bed with them in a pretty serious way for potentially years and years and years to come. So it feels yeah. like there's got to be a lot of personal conviction and comfort with that idea before you invest. It does. And then you're kind of along for the ride because you're not the person making, mm. calling the shots. You're just, at most, you're a coach. And usually only then it's when the company's in its earliest stages. So if you like to sort of be the person in the center of the ring, as it were, it can be tricky. And you don't, you're not, you shouldn't be calling the shots if you're an investor or board member. So, you, and so it's kind of this important tension and you've got to be careful where you, you don't step over that line. Yeah. So you left in 2015, which I imagine was no small thing because obviously everybody knows Sequoia. It's kind of one of the firms out here. Was that hard, leaving a kind of like a storied place like that? Yes, it was. The attenuating thing there was also I'd had my first kid and that changed a lot of my perspectives and time became very precious. So that helped a lot sort of to focus what was important. Right. So you leave... And then did you know that you were going to be that empower was going to be the thing or was it like, let me just leave and figure out what I want to do? Yeah, I wanted to have a little bit of breathing room to think and so just like let some of the ideas sit just just not too long, but just for a little bit. Well, because I imagine also you're just at a VC firm, you must be in just this swirl of ideas all the time. Yeah. You know, it must just be kind of almost bewildering. You know, it's just like constant like off-the-wall ideas or really interesting ideas or terrible ideas all being kind of thrown at you constantly. It's also an all-consuming job. You don't have a lot of time. To do a startup properly, you've got to commit all in. And also, you spend a lot of time saying no. Mm. So it's also very easy to see the negative in things. Right. And you kind of just need a little bit of that breathing room is to sort of regain a little bit more of that sort of optimistic outlook on things and sort of the, well, that might be the case, but I can solve that. Or right. I'll find a way kind of thing. Or we will find a way. Right. And so how did uh, credit kind of bubble to the top? A good part of it came from that first experience as an immigrant and not, mm. not being able to get a car. So, sorry, just on that, when you couldn't get a car, what would you do? <laughs> so I was very lucky. The car salesman started asking me a series of kind of bewildering questions. And one of them was, did I have my diploma with me? You're like, yeah, of course I do. I have it in my back pocket like I do every day. <laughs> it turned out I just moved. I just graduated from business school and I just moved out. And so I actually had it like I was able to go and get it and bring it in. Yeah. 
And he was able to get it and photocopy it and take it into the back somewhere and use that as verification or whatever have you that I would be a good enough. Oh, so this is like pre this is like pre SoFi. It's like handing credit yeah. to like business school grads, et cetera. Yeah, basically the the finance department was able to finagle something. You gotta love the car salesman. Yes. <laughs> Anything for the commission. They're on, they're on your side. <laughs> he knew the levers to pull. So luckily, I was still able to at the end of the day walk off, but it didn't look good for some time. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then again through the next seven, eight years, I thought I was doing all the right things, and still many times I made poor poor choices. I tried to refinance my house after leaving like refinance a mortgage after leaving oh yeah a stable job and there's no way in hell that you're gonna get that nope. done my credit score occasionally like not long after starting the company just dropped 100 points i had no idea why mm-hmm. it turned out i'd even though i pay every one of my credit cards on time i was starting to use like a lot the more limit. limit on my credit yeah. cards and the statement date is actually what counts not whether you pay it off this is one of my learnings and all of a sudden you know they just cut my credit score 30 points i will say on that because i think it's an important point you bring up because like uh i have credit karma which is you know one of the you you can kind of see your credit real time all the time and every once in a while i'll get like a notice and like the same thing i pay my credit card bills on time etc but then every once in a while i'll be like ding down 25 points or something and it just feels like there's this like magic potion that sometimes goes wrong like there's a magic like um formula that if you kind of step outside of that and no one tells you what it is that you're penalized, which I think is a really crazy thing, again, for something that is so determines your ability to do so many things. When we started early on, we also, we'd opened a sort of a deposit account for our users. Mm. And the biggest aha was that sort of two things happened. One, we'd had someone wire in a bunch of money and incorrectly put in one of the numbers. And so the money didn't land straight away in the account. And this was six figures of money. And the person, we didn't know why it had gone missing at the time. We had to reach out to them because we had, there's no record that comes to us when someone puts in the wrong numbers. And they weren't particularly stressed about the fact that six figures had just gone missing into the banking system somewhere. And it turned up a week later and everything ended up being okay. (laughs) But if payroll which normally hit on a Friday morning, mm-hmm. posted at 9 a.m. instead of 7 a.m. We had hundreds of users writing into us saying, where's my money? Because they were relying on it yeah. that day to put food on the table and gas in the car. And that, to me, I think was the biggest aha, because you read those messages and how important this is for people and how like how much they need it and how, frankly, close to the edge a lot of people were operating. And to sort of create, you know, in, in some in some ways, what our product also does, it creates a bit of an insurance policy for folks. They don't need it, but to simply know that it's there if you do get in a bind is super, super powerful. And so that was this other aha where we're like, oh my goodness, this is the the biggest pain point when you look at, when you go and talk to our users that we need to solve. And we had data to start playing with and we had a hypothesis and we like, you know, again, and go back to my venture days, we built machine learning to help sales forces and machine learning for CRM systems and all of these kinds of things. Like, why can't we solve the problem for people in their day-to-day money? Right, right. That's kind of the, where we went digging. And the solutions that you came up with are, again, being able to mine that banking data to give you a clearer picture of what somebody's finances actually are without having to go back three or four or seven years in their credit. Correct. So they can get credit sooner and they can also start building 
credit. In other words, because I guess that's the other thing is if your credit line does it, do you help them build credit in the other kind of the credit scoring system? Yeah. So we, we have two products. We have a cash advance product, which is technically not a loan. And as a result, it doesn't do reporting. And then we have a second product, which is called Thrive, which is a revolving line of credit. And that one is a loan. And that one does report to all three bureaus. And so one way to think about it is if a user is unsure or higher risk, they can start off on the cash advance because there's not that downside to the credit bureau. But what we saw was that with high 90% of people repaying and showing that they were responsible, we wanted to create a product where people could report to the bureaus, they could build that credit, they could sort of have visibility again into the financial system and be given another chance. Got you. And so again, going back to the idea of starting the company, so it was your experience as an immigrant. I mean, was it through Sequoia that you had had some of these other insights? What was the thing that we're like, okay, let's actually try to go after this? I mean, did you realize that there was 100 million people that you could potentially go forward? So obviously, it's a very big opportunity. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything, to be honest, because one of the lucky things at Sequoia is I got to see how some of these fintechs got built. And I, I saw how they acquired customers. I saw what it would take to get people and go up against the incumbents. And also internationally, we'd seen you know N26 in Europe. We'd seen Newbank in Latin America be very, very successful and hadn't really seen anyone be great in the US. Right. So I think today, like, Chime's done a really nice job on the deposit side. But at the time, they they hadn't been successful when we got going. And no one's been successful on the credit side, we think, until what we've really done. Here. And what is the typical kind of line of credit or size of credit you're, you're giving to people? Or is there one? It's typically 100 to a few hundred dollars is how, like, sort of 250, 300 is right. sort of the typical range where things start off. Right. And then over time... With the Thrive product, what we've done is every time you make an on-time repayment, you get access to more, up to $1,000. Got you. So you start that in 2016. How long before you raise money? We actually waited 18 months to raise money. We sort of bootstrapped it. And part of that was, again, sort of some personal conviction, like going back to 2008 and that mm -hmm. period, seeing how I think some of the best companies were built. It came from financial discipline and being lean. The famous RIP good times memo from Sequoia. Oh, yes. I remember it well. <laughs> and uh, I think it's the second or third slide. There's like a knife in a pig's head, just sort of the doomsday thing. Yes. Yeah. So we, we bootstrapped it, or partly to validate you know, some of the early hypotheses and build conviction uh, before raising the first, the first money. And we, we both didn't take salary for the first 18 months. And how was that first fundraising process? Was it the classic wall of no's and then a few yeses? Or was it, had you kind of got to that point where you're like, we've done this before and look at our 18 months of data? Yeah, the first one was a bit easier because honestly, at that point, people are taking a little bit more of a bet on the people. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. was lucky that I'd been in the Valley for a while and, and knew some good people. So, or people that were, that still wanted to take a bet on me. It gets harder later when, you know, people are like, well, you've had enough time to, to show numbers and show results, like show me the results. That's when uh, it gets more challenging. So you just raised 150 total. What have you raised now with that 150? I think total now is like 175 or something like that. Got you. Got you. So you've been still been pretty lean. I mean, if you start in 2016, 25 million up to 2022, that, that's not a lot for startup. That's, that's sort of part of our MO is that like 
we actually will the company should flip to profitability q2 next year right so you know we're 60 people we have a lot more revenue than companies that often have five to ten times the number of people that we have and you know it's one of our thoughts is that it's you know we would uh much prefer to solve problems with software than throw you know throw people at a problem that's actually a, a better mark of success and it actually ends up creating a much better customer experience so is there like an easy example you can give where you like this might in another context be done by a person or a team of people that you guys are just have automated we have 100 percent automated approval and no human in the loop same on like 100 collections yeah and same on the other side in terms of um collections and so if you look at like best in class like traditional loan companies like the fintechs that are public i think I think it's a upstart talks about being at 40 or 50% like yeah. of loans that are automatic. And, you know, then there's also people in the loop on collections and on the other side of things. We don't have a human in the loop on either side. That's feels kind of crazy. <laughs> we have a few humans on support. Yeah. So we have like, we have chat and what have you. And we definitely have, we have live chat with humans and we yeah. have uh, phone support as well because there is a important element there. But like one of the things we do is every month we're going through and we tag every support ticket and we look at like what are the volume ones mm. and how do we go and solve that in software or go fix an experience if, if we didn't get the experience right. And that automation in terms of the results, in terms of delinquencies and, you know, accounts in good standing, et cetera, how does that look? What's the kind of the rate? How do the ratios look? Well, I think I mentioned this earlier, like, our repayment rates are in the high 90s. So it looks much more like a traditional near prime or prime user than it does a subprime user. And is that a function of just because these are relatively small amounts? And is the idea that you're going to get bigger and bigger and that maybe you'll start to get into some trickier territory when it comes to repayment and delinquencies, etc.? I hope not. I don't think so. If you look at our trend lines, our loss rates and all those things are continuing to come down where supposedly for most other main street is going the other way right now and so we are continuing to get better at things and part of our mission is like we should be getting better and be able to in, in many ways give more back to the user and um on that point i mean i've been a business journalist for more than 20 years this is definitely the weirdest economy <laughs> i have experienced because it's like it's usually like things are all good or all bad but right now you have like record low unemployment here, but inflation is going crazy. You've got the energy crisis in Europe. Like it's really hard to understand what is happening. Is that, I mean, what is there anything that's kind of cropping up that is interesting in terms of what you guys are seeing with your customers or like in the larger data? For us, what's more most important is are people employed? And employment in the US mm. is still at basically record lows. Right. Very, very full economy. So this is much more of a supply kind of recession or pseudo recession, whatever you want to call it, which isn't impacting us in the same way it might be impacting like retail sales and other things. And so what are you going to use this uh, 150 million for? What's the kind of plan for global domination? Yeah, look, we want to grow and expand like the credit offerings that we have in the US over the next sort of 12 to 24 months. The problem of access to credit isn't just a problem in the US. It's mm. one of the most important determinants of your social mobility is, uh, you know, is your access to credit. And you go to a country like Mexico, access is around 10%. Yet 50% of people mm. are in the formal economy getting paid into a bank account. So there's a lot of emerging markets where 
we're, we're starting to get access to bank account data and real-time payments. And right. Yet the banks are even more slow moving than a U.S. you know, a U.S. bank. So huge opportunity. And so, you know, we think what we've developed in the U.S. and proven in the U.S. should be applicable. In the U.K.? I don't think in the U.K. Uh, oh, really? It's a little more little more complicated here. Yeah, you've, you've got to also find the right regulatory environment. And uh, at the moment... But this is the whole, this has been the whole pitch is you have all these fintech unicorns that have come up, uh, bubbled up post 2008 in the UK. And it was like, you know, it's a celebrated thing in the UK. Yeah. Unfortunately with Brexit though, you don't get the passporting, like you do a lot of work. Mm. The market's nowhere near the size of the US. It's still a decent market, but it's not going to be the second or the third market because if we could use it to passport into Europe, then it'd be far more interesting, but now you can't. And so we've looked at our, like mainland Europe, we've got one or two countries we've got our eye on because we can start there and passport out to the other states. Wow. Yet another example of the, the brilliance of Brexit. <laughs> I'm saying that. I know you're saying studiously quiet. I'm just, that's my views coming out. Um, well, cool. Well, look, uh, is there anything else you think is worth keeping in mind? I think it's a, it's a kind of this, like I said, I think it's a fascinating world and it's, that you've kind of hit upon because as I said, I just think credit is such a, it's an unlock for so many people, but I hadn't realized it was a hundred million people in the U S who were kind of on the outside looking in, which is just feels like such a shooting yourself in the foot in terms of economic growth and opportunity. Yeah. The last thing I would say is just sort of, we have some of the smartest minds in like machine learning or engineering thinking about, you know, how we go about doing this. And we are a remote first org and we're global. We have employees in eight, soon to be nine countries. And so what I would just say is like, if you want to have access to like a high growth technology, Silicon Valley kind of company, but you're not sitting in Silicon Valley, this could be a really cool opportunity. So, you know, we are hiring. Empower.com. Empower.me. Empower.me. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. That's the last thing I was going to ask about is, is remote work. Have you guys been remote since day one or was this a pandemic you started there and then you're like, oh, let's just keep doing this? We were a little bit hybrid. We had an office in San Francisco. We had an office in Melbourne, Australia, and we had a few people remote in Europe. So luckily we were tooled for it, but we still had sort of this dominance of like, if you were in the city with an office, you came into the office. But we made the commitment to be remote first about nine months into the pandemic. And that that was really this concept of a global talent arbitrage. We had seen the business accelerate. Like, I don't believe in the hybrid myself. I think you tool and change your processes to be remote first and put everyone on the same equal playing field. How you do performance, how you communicate, how you do async, you do an excellent job of that. And you allow people to design their lives around something other than work. They get 10 plus hours a week back, which is magic. And so they can show up to work to work 40 hours a week and be on the on a star team and a high performer, but still get this balance that comes from what you get back in the rest of your life. You know, and, and we had all, all but one of our exec team in the Bay Area and within a few months here, I think no one will be in the Bay Area. Wow. So how many of you have dispersed now? It's like seven. Wow. That's quite impressive because that's the thing you always hear about and I, you never know how much of it is true and how much of it is bollocks as as the brits would say of just like you know it's a global it's now you have you're not limited by geography in terms of talent you can really go get the best people wherever they may be and that always sounds great in theory but then 
you never quite know. It's like, is this actually true? Does this actually deliver on that promise? Because also, as you say, you have to figure out how to work asynchronously. You know, you're, what time is it right there? It's, uh, it's nearly 10 p.m. Yeah, it's yeah. nearly 10 p.m. You know, um, so it does, it does feel like there's some adjustments, but it sounds like it's working for you guys. Yeah, no, it's working well. It's not, it's not for everybody, but mm -hmm. we've found that there's a 30, 40, 50% of people that can make a huge difference in their lives. And it's actually, I mean, in touch with it's been really good for diversity as well because you can allow parents for example to flex more around their kids schedule yeah well it certainly beats shoveling shit <laughs> it does but <laughs> i go i go visit my sister in australia she has a ranch and last time i was there she had me on the horse mustering cattle at 5 a.m the first day so uh, oh, it's wow. good to it's good to get connected to your roots again indeed indeed well look thanks very much for taking the time i really appreciate it danny it was a pleasure and that is all the time we have i want to thank warren and I want to thank you all for taking the time, for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for sharing the news, sharing the word, uh, telling your friends and neighbors about the show. It really helps other people find it. And if you haven't, do take a moment. Just do a, write up a little review. Give me a, give me a little uh, five stars if you so, feel so inspired. It always is greatly appreciated. And that is it for me this week. We may be writing about Empower at some point. It won't be in this weekend, Sunday Times. Um, we're writing about a bunch of other stuff. So do check that out as ever at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. Have a fabulous weekend and we'll speak to you very soon. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.